Paul Tripp is a great author and pastor. I recommend you read some of the, He's got several books, but there are a few that are really, really good that I think. Um, but one of the things he, he mentions often is how we should interpret Scripture. So we come to books like Zechariah, and uh, they have, they're full of imagery, full of things that, that uh, could, could possibly not make sense to us. So how do we interpret that? How do we take what, Je- what Zechariah has said and interpret that into our own language or, or, or try and figure out all the things that he's saying? So what is our, what is our measurement? What's our standard? What's the criteria that we're using to interpret Scripture? Paul Tripp says we should use Scripture to interpret Scripture. The Bible should interpret the Bible. And then with that, when we use Scripture to interpret Scripture and the Bible to interpret the Bible, then we take that and say, if the Bible can interpret itself, if the Bible can uh, shape itself, in a sense, it should be shaping our lives. So we should be using Scripture to shape ourselves, the way that we act, the way that we live, uh, how we talk where we live, all those things should be shaped by by God's word because we're trusting in the fact that it is God's word, that it's living, that it's active, that he's using it for our counsel, uh, for our lives to instruct us in the way that we should go. And I think Zechariah is this, one of these books that we look at and say there are so many things in it. There are so many things prophesied. There are so many little nuggets, really we'll call them, that uh, that we that are hard to comprehend, that should be, uh, should be a mystery to us in a sense, but also should be shaped shaping our lives. We should be seeing how, uh, you know, this prophecy that was given before Christ entered the, uh, onto earth, uh, these prophecies were fulfilled in him. And there's things all throughout uh, Zechariah. So I'm going to try and sum up chapter 11 for you, move quickly through chapter 12 for you, and then stop at the first part of chapter 13. So if you remember from last week, we talked about that Jesus is this rejected and betrayed shepherd, that he is the good shepherd, rejected and betrayed by, by his own people, by his own flock in a sense. That Zechariah is this symbol representing the good shepherd, but also representing some foolish shepherds or some false shepherds that were happening, that were uh, being uh, leading people during during that time. We talked briefly about how that still happens in our world today, that there are many false prophets out there. There are many many authors, many preachers. You can listen to a wide variety of folks and they talk about things that sound like godliness, they sound like holiness, they sound like things from the Bible, but we must use the Bible and be good biblical interpreters, uh, be good, uh, we, we call it from Acts 17, be good Bereans and study God's word so we know, uh, we want to know the truth and be shepherded by Christ and Christ alone and not false prophets. And so we see like in verse um, 17 of chapter 11, it says, Woe to my worthless shepherd who deserts the flocks. May the sword strike his arm and his right eye. Let his arm be wholly withered, his right eye utterly blinded. So we see this declaration from the Lord that's going to play out here in in chapter 13, verse 7, uh, where we're, we're seeing that this worthless shepherd, the one that's worthless, the one that's false, should be the one that's getting the sword. He should be the one that's being uh, rejected. He should be the one that's being despised or betrayed. He should be the one that's being cut off. Woe to my worthless shepherd who deserts the flock. The one that's not leading well. The one that's um, not acting as a shepherd should act. So we're seeing this play out. We'll see it play out in, in verse uh, 7 of chapter 13. Then we move to chapter 12. We talk a little bit more about the good shepherd and how the Lord is going to provide salvation. And so symbolically this morning, I've already pointed it out for you, but symbolically this morning, as the deacons brought 
uh, the bread to you and brought the juice to you. It's the same way. They're providing these things for you. They prepared it beforehand and then they're bringing it to you. In the same sense, we're seeing that God is the one who's doing the acting. He's doing, uh, he's bringing the righteousness to you. Again, you're not having to climb some, some spiritual ladder or steps in order to get to the right place so that when you're at the right place, then the Lord will put righteousness upon you. He's saying, no, you will never be at the right place. And so I will come down to where you are and then I will put righteousness upon you through the death, burial, and resurrection of my son, Jesus. If you want to, next Sunday, when you're having conversations about Jesus, just talk about what I just talked about. Like the gospel, in a sense, is not you getting to the place where God can then save you, but instead it's you recognizing you can't get to any place deserving of salvation, but instead Christ comes down to where you are and I am, and he saves us in that mess and brings us out of that pit and puts his righteousness upon us so that we can have access to the Father, so we can have the life that he really has He really has. Um, uh, prepared for us or what he is uh, desired for for our lives. Again, church, religious folk, even if you know that, how often do you still try and live it and try and earn your salvation? How often do you still try and climb ladders, climb steps, do the right things, get in the right positions? Uh, at some, I mean, I've heard it said a number of times, I will get baptized when I'm at the right place. Okay, well, what do you mean by that? Like a place full of water? <laughs> or do you mean spiritually? Most of the time folks say spiritually. I will receive what, I'm, what I deserve when I get to the right place. Hopefully you will never receive what you deserve. Hopefully I'll never receive what I deserve. Instead, my hope is in that Christ took everything that I deserved, put it upon himself, and then gave me something that I do not deserve, his righteousness. And I probably should just say amen and end right there, but I'm going to keep on preaching because I told you I would. The Lord is the one bringing us the salvation, and chapter 12 is about that. The Lord bringing salvation to the people. Verse 1 says, It's the oracle of the Lord, the word of the Lord concerning Israel. Thus declares the Lord, who stretched out the heavens and founded the earth and formed the spirit of man within. So who's it, who is in charge of all of this stuff? Who has sovereignty over everything? The Lord. He's the one that made the heavens and the earth. He's the one that stretched it, formed it, shaped it. He's the one that put his spirit or spirit in man. Behold, I'm about to make Jerusalem a cup of staggering to all the surrounding people. The siege of Jerusalem will also be against Judah. On that day, I'll make Jerusalem a heavy stone for all the peoples. All who lift it will surely uh, hurt themselves. And all the nations of the, of the earth will gather against it. On that day, declares the Lord, I will strike every horse with panic and its rider with madness. But for the sake of the house of Judah, I will keep my eyes open when I strike every horse of the peoples with blindness. Then the clans of Judah shall say to themselves, The inhabitants of Jerusalem have strength to the Lord of hosts, their God. So who's receiving glory in this moment when these crazy things are happening? When horses are going crazy and blind and the people riding them are going mad? Who's going to, who's going to receive the glory or the honor or the recognition for the strength and for the things that are happening here? It is the Lord. And in a sense, today, your life should be the same. Whenever you're crazy... Jesus should get the glory for it. All right? Verse 6 says this, On that day I will make the clans of Judah like a blazing pot in the midst of, the wood, midst of wood, like a flaming torch among sheaves. 
And they shall devour to the right and to the left all the surrounding peoples, while Jerusalem shall again be inhabited in its place in Jerusalem. Verse 7, And the Lord will give salvation to the tents of Judah first, that the glory of the house of David and the glory of the inhabitants of Jerusalem may not surpass that of Judah. So the Lord is going to bring salvation to his people. Verse 8, And on that day the Lord will protect the inhabitants of Jerusalem, so that the feeblest amongst them on that day shall be like David, and the house of David shall be like God, like the angel of the Lord going before them. So though they were weak, because of God's grace and his mercy, they will be strong. And in their strength, who will get the glory? Who will get the recognition? The Lord will. Paul says the same thing to us. He says, in my weakness, I recognize grace, uh, God's grace is sufficient. And so all the more I will boast in that. I will boast in Christ. Verse 9 says, says this, And on that day I will seek to destroy all the nations that come against Jerusalem. Verse 10, And I will pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace. Notice how it changed. There was this blindness, this madness, this consuming fire, this judgment. And then all of a sudden in verse 10 it changes to, I will pour out not my wrath, not my judgment, but instead I will pour out grace and pleas for mercy, so that when they look on me and uh, when they look on me, on him whom they have pierced, they shall mourn for him as one mourns for an only child, and weep bitterly over him as one weeps over a firstborn. Church, if you've been. If, person belonging to Christ, if you've been in church for any time and you did not hear all the things about Jesus in that verse, we need to have several meals together and you need to purchase the meals and I will just preach to you about Jesus. Let me read it again. And I'll pour out my spirit of grace and pleas for mercy so that when they look on me, on him whom they have pierced, Isaiah 53, 5, he was pierced for our transgressions they shall mourn for him as one mourns for an only child. John 3.16, God gave his only son and weep bitterly over him as one weeps over a firstborn. Verse 11, on that day, the mourning in Jerusalem will be as great as the mourning for Hadad Ramon in the plain of Megiddo. The land shall mourn. Why are they mourning? Why are they in sorrow? Why are they grieving? Because the one who was pierced shouldn't have been pierced. The one who is suffering shouldn't be the one suffering. The one who is being separated shouldn't be the one who's, who's being separated. The one who's taking wrath upon himself shouldn't be the one who's taking wrath upon himself. They're putting all their hope in this one. They think he's the one, but all of a sudden, there's sorrow because they see the suffering, the death that he's going to experience that we celebrate on Good Friday. The terrible moment where the one and only Son, the flawless, sinless Lamb of God, takes upon the wrath of God upon Himself all sin, all iniquities, all rebellion, and in obedience to the plan God had beforehand, lays down His life for His people. For the world to be saved. And so we look at that, and like John maybe in Revelation where he says, in tears, is there anyone who can open up the scroll? 
I mean, I walked with Jesus. Surely it's Jesus. Is there no one that can open up the scroll in this same morning grieving moment? Almost all hope is lost because the one we were putting our trust and hope in seems to be failing. And I would say practically, I think that we struggle with this daily. We don't see Jesus meeting our needs the way we think that he should meet our needs. We want him to be sovereign, but we want to be sovereign over him and controlling him. He's not acting or performing the things that we desire of him. And in a sense, we become people mourning and grieving because things aren't going the way that we think they should go. And we think, is Jesus failing us? Is he failing the world? Does he not see the sin and the darkness that's happening all around us? And so we begin to grieve. And at some moment in your day, someone needs to preach the gospel to you or you need to preach it to yourself and be reminded of Easter or Resurrection Sunday. When we're reminded of what Christ has done, the completed work. Verse 13, the family of the house of Levi by itself and their wives by themselves, the family of the Shimeites uh, by itself and their wives by themselves and all the families that are left, each by itself and their wives uh, by themselves. All these people, all these families are mourning and grieving. Is there, any, is there any hope? We see the same thing play out on Good Friday. Verse 1 of chapter 13 says this, On that day there shall be a fountain opened for the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem to cleanse them from sin and uncleanliness. Think about this. On that day, on that very day, which day is it? The day that Jesus rose from the dead, a fountain opened up. A fountain opened up. Think about Jesus' words to, to the Samaritan woman in John chapter 4 when he speaks of himself being the fountain of life. Jesus said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring, a fountain of water welling up to eternal life. And on that day, Zechariah 13.1, On that day there shall be a fountain opened for the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem to cleanse them from sin and uncleanliness. What a great moment from sorrow and mourning to everlasting life. And that's what we see in Jesus. Every day we can celebrate that. Verse 2 says this, this fountain, this fountain that's going to bring eternal life, this fountain is also going to do some other phenomenal things. And on that day, declares the Lord of hosts, I will cut off the names of the idols from the land so that they shall be remembered no more. And all shall remove from the land the prophets and the spirit of uncleanliness. And if anyone again prophesies his father and mother who bore him will say to him, you shall not live for you speak lies in the name of the Lord. So there will be a day when all idols will be removed. And only Jesus, the fountain of life, will be worshipped. There will be a day when all false prophets and false prophecies against Jesus will be seen as lies. And everyone who continues to tell them shall be cut off. Verse 4. And on that day every prophet shall be ashamed of his vision when he prophesies. He will not put on a hairy cloak in order to deceive. But he will say, I'm no prophet I'm a worker of the soil, for a man sold me in my youth, a slave. 
And if one asks him, where are those wounds on your back as a slave? He will say, the wounds I received in the house of my friends. And then we get to verse 7. And verse 7 may wreck your world if you've never studied it before. Because when I ask you the question this morning, who's responsible for Jesus' death? Your answers are probably probably going to be the Romans, the Jews, Judas, me, you, your neighbor. If it ain't your neighbor, it should be your neighbor. Some of you are thinking, who is responsible for for the death of Jesus? None of us, unless we've studied, none of us would say the executioner of Jesus is the Lord. We're not going to place blame on God. God's not the one who's killing Jesus. When we say it in those terms, it seems so, so harsh. Verse 7 says this, Awake, O sword, against my shepherd, against the man who stands next to me, declares the Lord of hosts. Here's a scary moment because the one who's holding the sword is God. And he's saying, I want my sword to be to be awake because I'm about to bring my sword down upon someone. And who is this sword going to be placed upon or, or thrust into against my shepherd? And in this moment we think back to chapter 11 and we say it's got to be, it's got to be against the worthless shepherds. Those false shepherds, right? They're the ones deserving of this death. They're false. They're telling lies. It's got to be against me. I'm a sinner. Woe is me. Surely the sword should be cast down against me. Surely it should be against Judas. He turned him in. He sold him for for 30 pieces of silver. It should be those who reject Jesus. Surely they're the ones who are going to have the sword thrust against them. Awake, O sword, against my shepherd. Against the man who stands next to me, declares the Lord. Notice it's not just a rod of correction. I'm just going to paddle this false shepherd or I'm going to paddle this shepherd. Instead, it is a sword. And a sword brings death. So who's the identity of the one holding the sword? God. Who is the shepherd that this sword of justice is going to go against? Jesus, the man who stands next to me. Who can stand in the Lord's presence? Who can stand next to him? Only he could. Only the one that's sinless, flawless. Only he could stand next to and be an equal to God. And so God is saying, only the one who is sinless, flawless, the Lamb of God, so my sword would go against him. Romans 8, 32. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? God didn't spare his son. Instead, he gave him up for us. This loving father gave his only son up for us that we might be able to have access to his place. That we might might be able to have access to relationship with him through the death of his son. Acts 2.23 This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. You crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God's plan put in place so that we might have access to the Father. Isaiah 53, 4, Surely He has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed Him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. Isaiah 53, 10-11, Yet it was with the will of the Lord to crush Him. He has put Him to grief when His soul makes an offering for guilt. Whose guilt? Not His guilt. He's not guilty. Instead, He takes upon our guilt upon Himself. 
He shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By the knowledge, by his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. If it wasn't for Christ, you would have no hope. There would be no peace. There would be no hope, no peace in anything that you, that you have in this world. But because of Christ, because of the good shepherd who stands in our place, because believe me, if you knew me, I should be the one standing there. Not because of my righteousness, because I deserve the sword. But instead, Jesus stands in my place, takes the sword, God's wrath, upon himself. Why not Satan? He's deserving of that. He's evil. Why not Adam and Eve? They're the ones that brought sin into this world, right? Why not you? We can think through that all day long. And when we think through those things, we become more and more guilty. Instead, we should praise God in His, in His infinite wisdom that He would, that He would say, no one upon this earth can stand next to me. No one can receive my wrath except for me. And so in that I will send my one and only Son to die in their place that they may have righteousness added to their life, not because of who they are, but because of who I am. And then who gets the glory and the honor? Jesus. The identity of this shepherd standing next to God must be Jesus. And if it is Jesus, then all of life should belong to him. He is equally divine with God and equally sinless with God. And he stands in our place, taking upon the sin of the world. And then with all the sin of the world, taking upon the sword of God, the judgment of God, and then providing a way for us to have access to the Father, covered in his blood, covered in his sacrifice, with him walking out of the grave in newness of life. Why Jesus? Because he completes the work. He completes the covenant. He fulfills the prophecy. He provides the sacrifice and also the saving. And it must be Jesus. Hebrews chapter 10 is where we'll end today. If you have your Bible, turn there. Hebrews chapter 10 says this, starting in verse 1. For since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come, instead of the true form of these realities, it can never, it can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered each year, make perfect those who draw near. Lamb after lamb after lamb could be sacrificed over and over and over again. And in seeing that, and seeing that sin was will not be removed through that, God sends his son. Verse 2, Otherwise, would they not have ceased to be offered, since the worshipers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have any consciousness of sin. But in these sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins every year. For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. So consequently, when Christ came into the world, he said, Sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body... Have you prepared for me? In burnt offerings and sin offerings, you have taken no pleasure. Then I said, Behold, I have come to do your will, O God, as it is written of me in the scroll of the book. And when he had said above, You have neither desired nor taken pleasure in sacrifices and offerings and burnt offerings and sin offerings. They are offered according to the law. Then he added, Behold, I have come to do your will. 
He does away with the first in order to establish the second. And by that, will we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. And every priest stands daily at his service, verse 11, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering, he has perfected for all times those who are being sanctified. And the Holy Spirit also bears witness to us. For after saying, this is the covenant that I will make with them, after those days, declares the Lord, I will put my laws on their hearts and write them on their minds. Then he adds, I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. Whatever, Where there is forgiveness of these, there is no longer any offering for sin. Your sins this morning can be forgiven. Your sins yesterday can be forgiven. Your sins tomorrow can be forgiven because of Jesus. You can have hope. You can have peace if you trust in Jesus and Jesus alone. Let's pray. Lord, help us. Help us to see that what Christ has done is enough that we should not subtract from it or add to it, but instead we should rest in it because it is enough. And the picture of him standing next to you, being judged by you, a righteous judge, but being judged with my sin and the sins of the world does not make sense. Yet because of your grace and your mercy and your love for us and your desire for us to be whole, holy, and complete, God, let us be obedient to you also. As many of us have called you Lord, truly let us see you as Lord. God, let us walk in newness of life, no longer in the grave and in guilt, but instead in the forgiveness of sins through Jesus. Let us see his sacrifice that he made as we reflect even this week. Let us see it as a worthy sacrifice. If it's worthy to you and acceptable to you, God, let it be worthy and acceptable to us as well. God, help us this week not to live for ourselves, even in this moment as we respond to you, as we think through what's been said through your word. God, help us to respond obediently to you and to you alone. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.